0: Ata Mario Fano, co Sarah, Toco Ingwa. As Clint said, I am a mission partner here at the Well, and I'm going to be a little bit cheeky today, and start with a little bit of a ministry update before we dive into the sermon. Because last time I preached, um, one of my friends here said to me, "Sarah, it's really great hearing ministry updates and what you're doing, but could you just tell us a story about one person that you've actually helped?" Um, because I work in the area of human trafficking prevention and that's kind of a long-term thing about putting things in place now so that in the future people won't be getting trafficked and it's a little bit hard to put KPIs on that, it's often quite difficult to get feedback immediately but a couple of weeks ago I did get a story through and I'd like to share that with you before we start today. So as most of you will know, for the past 18 months uh, since war broke out in Ukraine, I have been working as part of the European Freedom Network's response, making sure Ukrainian women and children uh, weren't being trafficked as they fled. But as well as this, for Freedom, which is the ministry I serve with, we have been assisting three Ukrainian refugee families in Bulgaria, and this came about because I've got a friend through EFN, her name's Peter Ann, she's a missionary serving in Bulgaria and she serves with trafficked women. And about a year ago we were catching up for a, a coffee over Zoom and she was really upset because the Bulgarian government was, uh, who initially had housed thousands of Ukrainian refugees in hotels and motels... They were in the process of kicking them all out because it was tourist season and they wanted the money. Uh, And Peter Ann was really upset and she wanted to help fund accommodation, but she didn't have any funding. And I sort of went, ah, because unbeknownst to her, two days earlier, we had been contacted by the Presbyterian Church in Australia who'd done a Ukraine appeal, and they contacted us and said, "Uh, we'd like to give you 60,000 Australian dollars to give to work in Ukraine. So we partnered with Peter Ann's organization and a local church, uh, and we have been funding emergency supplies, rent, food, schooling costs, medical care and trauma counseling uh, for these three Ukrainian families. And we've just sent over some additional funding to keep doing this for another 12 months. And this morning, I want to read you some of a message we got recently from one of the families we've been supporting. And this is Alina. I've changed her name for security reasons, and she is from Kierson, which, if you're watching the news at the moment, it's um, one of the cities that's being flooded as a result of the dam being sabotaged and bombed. And she had to flee Kierson with her two children, uh, leaving her husband behind to fight. And this is what she says. We come from Kirsten. Our house there is destroyed. We escaped from the front door while being attacked under gunfire. Soldiers were running all through our street. And we were scared for our lives and the lives of our children. I didn't think we would make it. First, we made it to Moldova. My husband had to stay behind at the border to fight. After a few weeks there, we finally made it to Bulgaria. But in that moment, it was very hard. We were without money. We were without clothes. We had nothing with us. We just had our documents and my kids. It was scary, and if it wasn't for the people who helped us, we wouldn't have survived. I'm very thankful for the help of your organisation paying for our apartment. I'm so thankful because I can't pay that high rent. I wish with all my soul you and your families peace, health, warmth and all the best. You make it possible for us to live and survive in this difficult time. And I thank you for all the help and care. So friends, when we're watching the news with the Ukraine stuff. It's people like Alina that need our prayers and they need our care. Thank you for your support of me, which enables us to do this kind of work. So we're going to jump right from that now. We'll jump right to the sermon. Very awkward segue. I couldn't think of a a nice way to do it, so we're just going to go. So welcome. Uh, Last week, um, Clint was preaching um, from our series, Embodying Renewal. And this is the last week in this series. And Clint was speaking last week about what it looks like for us to have a renewed spirit. And I'm going to continue on from what he was sharing last week. Because I think for us to be able to walk in the spirit, for us to be open to the spirit and able to listen to the spirit, and if we're honest, to actually want to follow the leading of the spirit, we need something else to be renewed, and that's our heart. And we're going to do that this morning through some scriptures that initially surprised me. Um, The Lord kept leading me back to the book of Ezekiel, where I did discover there's some very cool stuff about the Spirit of God and what it means to have our hearts renewed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're going today. And I will confess, prior to preparing this sermon, I hadn't spent a whole heap of time in Ezekiel, but man, it's amazing. What a fascinating book. It's like the whole gospel story in one book of the Bible. There's imagery from the Garden of Eden all the way through to Revelation, and there's rebellion and disobedience and brokenness and exile from God, and we see God's longing for restoration his promise of redemption and transformation. There's even prophecies about Jesus in there. Ezekiel prophesies there's going to be a Davidic king, a king from the line of David, who will come as Israel's servant king and give us the Holy Spirit. Some theologians call this book the Gospel of Ezekiel. And amongst the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel's known as the prophet of the Spirit Because the noun that refers to the Holy Spirit, excuse my pronunciation, is a Hebrew word, ruach, which is translated as breath and spirit. And it occurs more than 52 times in this book. It's full of Ezekiel saying, the spirit lifted me, the spirit said to me, the spirit of the Lord came upon me. And we see Ezekiel as a man totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. To give a bit of context for the passage we 're going to be focusing on today, Ezekiel was an Israelite in exile in captivity in Babylon, round about five hundred and ninety ish bc and This book begins five years after he was taken into exile, and he is sitting on the banks of the river Chebar in Babylon near his Israelite, which would have been like a refugee camp, and it was his 30th birthday, which had he still been in Jerusalem, would have been the year he became a priest in the temple. And he was sitting there feeling a bit sad, a bit sorry for himself, when all of a sudden he saw this incredible vision, this massive storm cloud approaching, and inside it there were flames and Four huge creatures that had four big outstretched wings each and they had four faces. They had a human face and a um, lion and an oxen and an eagle's face and they had wheels that went in every direction and upon them they were lifting up this massive throne built of precious stone upon which he could see this figure resembling a man that he describes as being like gleaming amber, like burning flames, shining with splendor, like this glowing halo, like rainbow shining in the clouds. This was the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. And God then speaks to Ezekiel from his throne chair, and he calls him to be a prophet. He calls him to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God by worshipping other gods and allowing injustice and violence into society. And God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people there is going to be another attack. This time, both Jerusalem and the temple will be completely destroyed. Ezekiel has six massive, like quite out there visions, the best known probably in chapter 37, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones, and he also has multiple prophecies for Israel. In fact, the first 24 chapters are prophecies against Israel. One commentator describes them as oracles of woe, warning Israel of the consequence of their sin and what will come If they don't stop worshipping other gods, being disobedient and rebellious. But even here, in the middle of these oracles of woe, we see the Lord's promise to renew Israel's heart and his promise of restoration. Ezekiel 11, verse 17, I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols, and I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart, so they will obey my decrees and regulations, and they will truly be my people, and I will be their God and then he says again a few chapters later in Ezekiel 18, put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Chapters 25 to 32, more prophecies of doom, but this time they're against Israel's neighbors. And then in chapter 33, things change. And we start to see incredible prophecies and visions of hope and salvation, and God's plan for redemption and transformation through the renewing of hearts and the sending of the Spirit. In chapter 33, Ezekiel is met by a refugee who gives the report that Babylon has attacked Jerusalem, the city has fallen, and the temple of God has been completely destroyed. They are distraught. But even in the midst of such bleakness and despair, God speaks hope. He promises he'll raise up a new David, the future Messiah for a new Israel. And we learn in chapter 36, this new Israel is going to be a transformed people. God is going to deal with the heart of their sin and rebellion by giving them new hearts, that will love and obey God, hearts filled with the Spirit of God. So today we're going to be looking at some verses from Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27, where God says, For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you, so you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, when Ezekiel first gave this prophecy, Israel was practically desolate. Jerusalem had been completely destroyed, her people exiled, but in the midst of this desolation and despair and complete hopelessness, God promised not only to bring back his people from captivity, but to completely restore them not because of anything they had done, but because of his goodness and his grace and who he is. And I love the wording of this translation in verse 24. I will gather you up from where you are and I'll bring you back. To me, that just is such a deeply personal action because when we gather things up what are we doing like if we gather up the laundry the washing or we're gathering up our kids toys what are we doing we're gathering them up in our arms and we're holding it close and then we're putting them in their rightful place And that's God's promise to Israel. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, I love you, I've got you, I'm gathering you up, and I'm bringing you back. And I also love in this passage the number of times God promises, I will do this. I will gather you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. It's not you will do it. It's God saying, I will do this. Israel had been worshipping other gods. There was lots of injustice, violence, horrific, sinful behaviour going on. And God's not saying to them, man, you guys have stuffed up. You can come back, but first, go and clean your act up. First, get your heart right. Show me how well you're going to obey me, and then you can come back. God is saying, I'll do it. I will gather you back. I will cleanse you from all filth and everything you've done. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. And then to make the point, he says it again, I will remove your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender new heart. I will put my spirit in you. And this is the spiritual transformation that God promises every single one of us. It's the promise Jesus came to fulfill. He transforms us by changing our stony, stubborn hearts and replacing it with a tender, responsive heart and filling us with his spirit. This is the promise we all have in this passage. But notice the order. He doesn't put his spirit in us when our heart is stony and stubborn. He first cleanses us. He renews our hearts and makes them tender and pliable and responsive. And then he gives us his spirit. And I don't know about you, church, but I want more of the spirit in my life. And I want my heart to be transformed and changed. I don't want stony stubborn. I want tender and responsive and yet, I, I think often we want to hang on to stony and stubborn and have the spirit without that, but that's got to come in the middle. And I think it's significant, the fact that he talks twice here about the condition of our heart, because it really matters to God. You know, interestingly in the Bible, here's a fun fact for you, the brain is not mentioned once but the heart is mentioned more than 800 times. The Bible, when the Bible speaks about our heart, its our spiritual heart, it's referring to our mind and our will and our feelings, our attitudes, our emotions. Our heart is who we are as a person, what is inside us. And every choice we make, every decision we make, every word we speak... Everything we do flows out of what is in our heart. Jesus says in Luke 6.45, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And when you think about the human heart from a physical perspective... Our hearts are pretty central to life, yeah? Like our entire lives are dependent upon the fact we have to have a healthy, beating heart. If our physical heart is hard and immovable and it's not tender and it doesn't respond or move or beat or pump, what happens? We're dead. And as our physical heart is central to life and us living well, our spiritual heart is also central to every aspect of life. And if our spiritual heart isn't tender and responsive to the leading of the spirit, if, if our spiritual heart is stony and stubborn and hard, then there's not going to be any life coming out of us either. We're going to be spiritually pretty much dead. And it's not like our physical heart, where if that starts to clog up, We can do things and improve its condition by eating and drinking better or reducing stress or exercising more. When it's our spiritual heart, nothing we can do can change our heart from stony to tender. Only God can do that. But we have to be willing for him to do it. And Ezekiel contrasts these two different hearts, one stony and stubborn that comes from a place of sin and disobedience and rebellion, and the other tender and responsive that comes from God. And I just want to have a look at these two hearts that Ezekiel refers to. And the first one is the stony heart, like that one. This was the heart that Israelites had because they worshipped other gods. They allowed injustice and violence as a part of our lives. I find that a bit convicting when you think about our world that we live in. The Israelites were disobedient. They were rebellious. They were doing things their own way and as a result, their hearts grew hard. And there's no avoiding the fact that the cause of a stony, stubborn heart is sin. Now you can call it big sin, little sin, however you think of sin. We all sin. There's no escaping it. And sin really is doing things our way, not God's way. It's trusting or acting on what we think or what we feel instead of trusting God and acting on his truth. Every time we know what God wants us to do and what we should do, but we still choose to go our own way instead, that's sin. And I think most often, the cause of our hardening and becoming like this is because of sinful attitudes And thoughts, the stuff that's going on inside, that often creeps in little by little until we're not even aware we're doing it, and we're not even aware of how hard our heart has become. We might have a stony heart because of pride, you know, like when we give credit to ourselves instead of acknowledging God. When we focus too much on ourselves Not just about how great we are or how great we've done something But also when we focus On our negative points Or how much we suck at something Or gosh I wish I'd done that different We're still focusing on ourselves Not on God Pride fuels our need to have to control things because we think we're the only ones that can do it, and if we're not controlling it and making sure things happen, it's not going to happen. You know, it causes us to trust ourselves when we should be trusting God. We might have a stony heart because we are unrepentant. Romans 2 verse 5 says, Because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin... You're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. Now, no no one is perfect. We all sin. Yeah? Is it just me? Hope not. Well, I'll talk to myself. (laughs) We all sin. You know, we all have stuff in our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts, our heart. It's how we were made. Like Clint talked about this, this last week. We are sinful people. But when we make excuses for our sin and when we just keep on doing it, our heart becomes hard. And the key to our hearts being renewed and being made tender and able to hear and able to respond to the Spirit is repentance and I was saying to Clint, I don't think I've actually preached a sermon about sin and repentance, but this is this is what it's about. You know, there's no getting away from the fact. Sin and wrong attitudes and looking away from God causes our hearts to harden. And we need to repent. And that just means we need to change direction. doesn't mean we have to, you know beat ourselves up about how bad we are, but like the Israelites had to stop looking at Babylon and they had to turn around towards Jerusalem, that's what we need to do. We need to keep turning back to God when we recognize we've turned away. We might have a stony heart because we're holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness and we just want to protect ourselves from more hurt, As I was preparing this this week, I had a really strong sense there's someone here who's got a stony heart just because you're tired, tired of it all and exhausted with the struggle and just feeling overwhelmed. We might have a stony heart because it's just been too much grief and too much pain and too much trauma because stony hearted people are not bad people. They are broken people. Usually because something's happened somewhere in the past, that's made them broken hearted. Perhaps they risked vulnerability or trust or a relationship and ended up getting hurt, betrayed, rejected. And sometimes people protect themselves by saying, I'm never going to let anything like that happen to me again. And when we do that, hardness starts to set in. And they stop being vulnerable and become untrusting and isolated. And this can happen even if they seem to remain relational with others because it's what's happening inside. We might have a stony heart, but God doesn't want us to keep it he wants us to exchange it, to take it and replace it with a tender heart. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Forgive each other, just as God in Christ Jesus forgiven, has forgiven you. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of heart I want to have. One that is pulsing with life and vibrancy and is beating strong. I want a tender heart that recognizes and responds to the leading of the spirit without even thinking about it. I want a tender heart that's known for being warm and caring and a tender heart that understands life is really hard, but I'm not gonna let that stop me from reaching out and helping others. I want a tender heart that listens and is present for others, that feels deep joy and deep compassion. Because a tender heart is not a weak heart. I actually think you've got to be really tough to have one of these tender hearts because it means you're prepared to be vulnerable and show people who you really are. A tender heart knows and follows the leading of the Spirit, and this is what God wants us to have, a heart like Ezekiel that recognizes and knows the voice of the Spirit so that we can be saying This is the spirit lifting me up. The spirit is saying to me, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the heart God promises we can all have. And he will give us if only we open up and let him in and change direction back to him. But I think there's also a third heart that's somewhere between the two, and I tried to find something a little bit more scriptural and biblical to call it, but I couldn't come up with anything better than a crusty heart. You know the one? Like this. It's tender on the inside. There's still a bit of give. It's feeling and compassion inside, but it's a bit of stony, stubborn crust on the outside sometimes maybe just a little bit of crust, sometimes covers quite a bit more. Carrie Newhoff, who's a Christian leadership author, says, the longer I am a Christian, the more intentional I have to be at keeping my heart open and fully alive. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. God gives us a new heart when we come to him, a tender, responsive, alive heart, but we have to guard it. We have to protect it and watch over it and keep a close eye on it and be vigilant about what it is exposed to. And to do this, We have to keep in his gathered arms. We have to keep close to the Lord. Because the minute we turn away, you can start to feel the crustiness hardening on the outside of your heart. Well, I can. And it's when we turn back, it's when we repent, we ask him again, will you come and do what you've promised? Will you come and make us new? Because it's so easy, without us even being aware, for these little crusty bits to start coating the outside of our heart. We have to be vigilant. And I think it's important to learn and recognise within you the signs that let you know the crust is starting to harden. Newhoff suggests things like this. You don't really celebrate, but you don't really cry either. You stop genuinely caring as much as you used to. What's supposed to be meaningful and enjoyable just feels mechanical, like a duty. Passion and joy, hard to come by. You become cynical and no longer think the best about people. You choose just to keep a bit of distance, which is good because it means you don't feel pain and hurt, but it means in the process you lose your ability to empathise. You stop looking for what's good in people and in situations. You take offence and go over and over it. And I could add many, many things to this list because this is where I hang. And I know my heart gets crusty, when I recognise I'm getting annoyed and I'm taking offence way more easily than usual. I notice my heart's getting crusty when I'm aware that I'm actually swearing more than usual. And to be honest, I just feel I just want to hit the time out button and have a break. And I had a, a season like this a couple of months ago. I had a crazy busy start to my year. And even though I was busy doing the Lord's work, I turned. And I focused on getting the work done and not on him. And I got crusty. And I just got to a stage, sort of end of March, middle of March, and I was like, oh, I don't want to stop doing this, but I'm tired. I just want a break. I'm not enjoying it. I just want some time out. Someone criticized me for something, and oh my goodness, the way I went on about it, you would have thought it was the end of the world. And in the midst of this, I did take a break, which is what I needed. And I read, while I was on my break, a book by Christine Kane called How Did I Get Here? That resonated with me because she was talking about getting to that place of losing your spark and your joy and your passion for what God's called us to and just wanting a break. And she wasn't writing from a place of burnout and she wasn't Writing as someone with a stony, stubborn heart. She was writing it with a crusty heart, recognising the reason for the crustiness, this hardness that was creeping in, was she'd allowed the difficulties and the stress and the uncertainties of the pandemic and global lockdowns and the complete upheaval to life we have all experienced over the last three years, she recognised that had just worn her down. She wanted a break. She wanted to hit time out. And she recognised it was causing her heart to harden. And like Newhoff, she also said, the longer I am a follower of Jesus, the more intentional I have to be at guarding my heart and keeping it open to him. So friends, as we close this morning, you know the question I'm gonna ask How's your heart? If you recognize your heart as stony and stubborn, if your heart is tired or broken, or you recognize pride or unrepentance or bitterness or grief or unforgiveness or just wrong attitudes and stuff going on that have taken hold, if you know, actually I just much prefer doing things my own way and not worrying about God, and if you recognize perhaps that your heart is getting a bit of a crusty shell on it. You've got to know the promises that God made Israel are promises He's making to us today and He's making to you. He is promising you just turn around and I will gather you up. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean and your filth, all that crustiness. I'll wash it away, and no matter how far away you think you are, no matter how hard or lifeless you think your heart has got, or how crusty that shell is becoming, just turn around to me, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will Take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you. Church, I've spoken to so many people over this series and over this week, and there's just such a hunger for more of God's spirit. So many people are just, you know, I just want to know the spirit. I want to know the leading of the spirit. I want to experience more of the Holy Spirit in my life. And as a church, we want to see the Spirit just moving in power, but it's not going to happen until we get our hearts renewed. You know, until we just simply, all we've got to do is turn around. We don't have to do anything more than that. That's our part. We've got to turn around. He will gather us. He will will renew our hearts. He'll cleanse us. He'll give us that new heart and he promises he will pour out his spirit within us. So church, as we move into a time of communion, I want to invite you to take whatever time you need. God doesn't want us to have hearts that are stony, stubborn, crusty. He wants our hearts renewed, tender and responsive. So ask him to take your stony, stubborn heart. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to give you a new tender heart. Ask him to give you his spirit because he will. That's his promise to us. I want to just close by praying from um, Psalm 51. So I just invite you to join with me.
1: Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me Cast me not away from your presence O Lord Take your Holy Spirit from me, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. Amen. Amen.